You're listening to Pastor Rory Rogers as he teaches through the book of Luke. If you have your Bibles with you, please turn there now. We're in Luke chapter 22, verse 54 this morning. So you can go ahead and flip over there. And well, we've been studying the last night of Jesus's life. For the last two weeks, we've looked at the Passover and the Lord's Supper uh, being instituted. We've looked at Jesus, uh, you know, telling the disciples that one of them would betray him. And, uh, and we found that that was Judas and that, uh, Satan had possessed Judas to go and, and bring this betrayal about, uh, towards the end of the supper in verse 31, if you don't mind just jumping back a hair, uh, you know, the Lord says to Simon, 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 indeed, Satan has asked for all of you disciples is, is the word that he may sift you as wheat, but I've prayed for you, Peter, that your faith should not fail And when you've returned to me, strengthen your brethren. So towards the end of the supper time, you know, Jesus just tells Peter, hey, you know, I'm praying because Satan wants to beat you guys up. He wants you guys to deny me and it's going to happen. But I'm praying for you, Peter, that when you return from the denial that's going to take place, uh, that you would, you know, encourage and strengthen your brethren. And Peter, you know, he doesn't really know how to respond to that. You know, verse 33 says to Jesus, Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. I don't know where you're getting this, Jesus. Perhaps I've been, we've had mixed messages here. You think my love level for you is a, you know, two and a half, but Jesus, it's a, it's a 10 and a half. I'm, I'm ready to go to prison with you. I'm ready to die. Understand that. You know, remember Matthew's gospel says that he and the other disciples vehemently to the point of violence argued with Jesus that I will not betray you. I will die with you. And Jesus says, I tell you, Peter, the rooster shall not crow this day before you will deny three times that you know me. And so just a very sobering moment there for Peter as Jesus tells him the truth. After that, the verses, uh, you know, following, you know, uh, Jesus goes to the garden of Gethsemane and he prays and, and, you know, keeps telling the disciples, watch and pray lest you enter into temptation. And Jesus would go a stone's throw away. And remember in anguish, verse 44 says in anguish, Jesus was praying an angel even was dispatched from heaven to strengthen Jesus, but that didn't do anything. And his sweat became like great drops of blood as he was just stressed out over the events that were taking place as he was going to be offered up for the sins of the world and the father was going to turn his face on him. And so just this uh, anguishing time when finally he, he looks and he sees the torches coming as 600 soldiers come to arrest Jesus and they're accompanied by Judas Iscariot. And remember, John's gospel says that Jesus said to these 600 men, who are you searching for? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And he said, I am he. And when he said, I am he, 600 soldiers fell backwards. An incredible thing to have witnessed. And as they get back up, he asks again, who are you looking for? And they, Jesus of Nazareth, you know, and he says, I am he. And in Judas, somewhere in there, Judas comes and kisses him. And Jesus says, you betray me with this act of love. It's now become a sign of betrayal that you would kiss me, Judas. 
He says, well, this is all part of the plan. You know, it's all part of the plan. And so Jesus is arrested and led away. And that brings us to verse 54, where having arrested him, they led him and brought him into the high priest's house. But Peter followed at a distance. So John tells us that uh, one, another disciple actually went with Peter uh, to Caiaphas's house because this other disciple had close personal connections to Caiaphas, the high priest at that time. And so this other disciple goes in and is able to get Peter into this kind of outer court, this kind of walled off area. And it says that Peter followed him at a distance. Matthew's gospel says it was to see the end. To see the end. Somehow Peter knew that these words of Jesus, that he must go to Jerusalem to suffer, to be betrayed, uh, to be beaten, to be crucified, and to rise again on the third day. It was kind of starting to, to come home for Peter as he followed at a distance to see the end. Now, as they're going, notice to whose house it's, it is. It's Caiaphas's house, the high priest at that time. Clear back in, in John chapter 11, I believe it is, uh, the disciples are, or excuse me, not the disciples, the priests and the scribes, they're all angry at Jesus. They don't like what Jesus has been saying, and they're arguing, what are we going to do with this guy? And Caiaphas, in, in an unknowing prophecy, He rebukes these guys and he says, you fools, don't you know that it's necessary or it's expedient that one man die for the sins of the nation that the rest of the nation might live? Just, I don't know where that came from. You know, the man knew the Old Testament. He knew what, you know, some of the suffering stuff was talking about. Whether or not he knew it was Jesus or not, he said it in John 11. And here we find Jesus standing before the man that prophesied that. Even though the man hates Jesus, he prophesied it. And the moment has come that he prophesied about where one man, you know, before the next day was up, was going to die for the sins of the whole nation, that the whole nation might get saved. So they're at Caiaphas's front yard, you know, he's got a special front yard burn barrel, you know, where everyone is huddled around and, and stay, staying warm. But G, uh, Peter followed at a distance. And I wonder why Peter even followed, you know, I think you have to give credit where credit is due. You know, in all my years of youth pastoring, man, I love to make fun of Peter. You know, it really gets a laugh out of the kids, you know. And the stupid Peter, big old oafy guy, you know, and getting out of the boat to walk on the water, but looking away and drowning, you know, starting to, oh, Peter, what are you thinking? You know, and he's kind of a fun guy to, to make jokes about. And we often, you know, uh, deride Peter for falling at a distance. We often, you know, laugh at him for denying Jesus three times and, and oh, Peter, but you got to give the guy credit. You know, he's the guy that said in verse 33, I am willing to suffer and die for you. I'm willing to go to prison and to die for you. And now it's at the point where he's really asking himself, am I really going to have to do this? You know, it was really in the garden where am I really going to have to do this? And we see the answer to that is that he was ready to suffer and die you know, that was proved with all the skill of a fisherman with a sword as he, you know, swings it and cuts off the, you know, servant's ear. But he was still stepping up to the plate, ready to fight. 
And yet something happened in him where in the end, he kind of stepped back and crumbled a little bit. But you got to give him credit. Everybody else ran off. But Peter, while it might not have been closely following, he at least followed at a distance. And so as we look at the life of Peter, how do you explain this collapse or this crumbling of the rock? You know, I was driving out to Polina uh, two days ago and I noticed there's, there was this cliff face, like you see around here a lot, but this big, huge chunk of the front of this cliff looked like it had just crumbled off. And it looked like it had basically just gone poof, like that. And you're just like, what caused that face of that cliff to just fall off like that? In the same way, Peter, just something happened where he, he went from a sword-yielding guy or wielding guy uh, to, a, to a crumbled rock here. And I think ultimately, self-preservation, uh, the desire to save his life, one out over his loyalty to Jesus. Peter loved Jesus. We'll give Peter that, won't we? He loved Jesus. He loved him a lot, enough to follow him, enough to drop his nets and get out of his boat and push his boat out to sea and run and follow. Well, he didn't push the boat. You know, but follow Jesus. You know, to give up that life of being a fisherman, there was some love there. But he also loved being alive at that moment. And that one out over him dying um, on that day. So it was too hard for Peter to face the consequences of what selfless devotion to Jesus would mean. He knew it would mean his death. And so he follows at a distance. And verse 55, when they kindled a fire in the midst of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat among them. And a certain servant girl, seeing him as he sat by the fire, looked intently at him and said, this man was also with him. And, uh, you know, one of the gospels tells us that that was the servant whose ear got cut off. It was a relative of his. So here's this girl. We all know when someone cuts off our relative's ear, you know, we know who did it, right? It was that guy, you know, she knows who did it. That guy also was with him. I know that guy. But here's the first denial, verse 57. But he denied him. He didn't deny it. He denied him. He denied Jesus, saying, Woman, I do not know him. Verse 58, we have the second denial. And after a little while, another saw him and said, You also are of him. And, and it goes on to say in Matthew's gospel, For your speech betrays you. Or actually... Uh, that would be the next one, actually. But so, you know, you are also of them. But Peter said, man, I am not. And after about an hour had passed, another confidently affirmed, saying, surely this fellow also is with him, for he is a Galilean. And then he says, for your speech betrays you. You know, it's the same thing as today. We know when someone's from the South. Y'all come back now. You hear, you know, uh, we know when someone's from the South. They knew when someone was from Galilee, they had that accent. I, I know you're from Galilee because you're talking like this. And so, uh, man, I don't know what you're saying. And Matthew's gospel tells us, and, and, uh, and actually, I'm sorry, it was, it's Mark's gospel, verse 71 of chapter 14. He began to curse and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. And then the rooster crowed. I mean, there was some vehement accusation that's going here. 
Now, let's say after the first denial, why didn't Peter just get up and leave? Oh my gosh, I just denied him once. Might as well get it over. I'm just out of here. I'm out of here. You know, I don't want to deny him. But he stays around, maybe thinking if he's given another opportunity, he can totally redeem himself, you know? And so the other opportunity comes, you know? I know that you're, you know Jesus. And man, maybe he thought, oh, if I can just not deny Jesus, then I'll even the playing field out. And now all of a sudden I, I have a fresh slate. I'm Mr. Fix-It. I just fixed my first denial. But that didn't happen. He denied again, and he denied again. And then, uh, you know, that third denial, uh, just a complete cursing in verse 59 uh, and 60. I don't know what you're saying. And it says, immediately while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. And so here we have the, the crumbling of the rock, the downfall of Peter that we can attribute to a few things here, six things actually, uh, Number one, overconfidence. Peter was overly confident. I will not deny you. And he's to the point of violence with Jesus. You don't understand. I will not. And the word tells us that, you know, we're, we who think we're going to stand, we need to take heed lest we fall. You know, there is something good about us acknowledging our weakness. You know, acknowledging that we are insufficient for the task at hand. And I love that second Corinthians, you know, Paul says, who's sufficient for these things, man, our sufficiency is in Christ. If I'm strong at all, it's not me. It's the Lord. Yet Peter stood in his own strength. He was overly confident. The second thing that led to the downfall of Peter was thinking he knew better than Jesus. You know, Jesus has, has proven himself that what he says is going to happen. You know, but Peter argued, I know better than you, Lord. And the same thing is true in our life. You know, there's in Christians, there needs to be a teachability, you know, a soft heart. You know, you can't mold hard clay. We need to have a soft heart that can be molded by the master potter. And, but if you're unteachable here, if, if no one can tell me what to do, you don't know me, you don't know, I don't care about you, you know, in that way. I care about what the word says and you need to yield to the authority of the word. Uh, the third thing that led to Peter's downfall was prayerlessness. Three different times Jesus came in the garden and kind of kicked the boys and said, you know, Watch and pray lest you enter into temptation. What temptation? The temptation of denying Jesus. Watch and pray. One. Watch and pray. Two. Watch and pray. Three. You know, three kicks. Watch and pray. Can't you just for one hour not fall asleep and pray? And man, for us, we are called to be prayer warriors. In Colossians, we're told to be vigilant in prayer or to be open-eyed in prayer. And you know, when the Holy Spirit is moving on your heart that you need to pray, maybe that's at night and you can't go to sleep. Have you ever thought about, Lord, am I awake to pray about something here? You know, with open eyes, pray. I'll tell you, the best prayer position is not laying on your comfortable posturepedic bed, you know, with your electric blanket on and your comfortable pillow, you know. The, the good prayer positions, you know, are often on your knees. You know, James uh, was known as, as old camel knees, you know, because he prayed so much. His knees just built up, 
you know, this, this cartilage, this scar tissue from, from being on those knees all the time. Man, pray with your eyes open if need be. Pray on the gravel if need be. But pray. Watch and pray lest you enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak, Jesus says. Fourth thing that we see leading to Peter's uh, denial is following Jesus at a distance. Man, if you're walking with Jesus, is, is, you know he's 100 yards ahead of you, you're in a danger zone. But man, have that intimate relationship with Christ where you're near him. You know, John chapter uh, you know, 15, I'm the vine, you are the branches. You know, unless you're attached to the vine, you won't bear fruit, but you'll die. Be attached to the vine, be attached to Jesus, have close fellowship with Jesus, but don't follow him at a distance or you will die. Don't warm yourself at the enemy's fire like Peter did. You know, there's a lot more opportunity for denial if you're by yourself at the enemy's fire. And ultimately it comes to denial. But, you know, I see myself in Peter, you know, how easy it is to profess strong faith, you know, but when the rubber meets the road and the, you know, the persecution begins to get hot, how quickly we just kind of calm down, you know, I don't want to ruffle anybody's feathers, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to cause dissension here, you know, but I want to, you know, I'll just cover my head with my hood, you know, and make sure nobody recognizes me. And it's here in this incident of Peter's denial that we recognize our own human tendencies, to when the temptation comes to fall or when the persecution comes to deny. You know, we need to know the, the weakness of our heart at times. And I'm so encouraged by Acts chapter 1 verse 8. Because Jesus says, you know, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you will be witnesses of me. Or that word witness is martyro where we get the word martyr. You will be martyrs of me in Jerusalem, in Judea, Samaria, and the outermost parts of the world. How in the world are we going to be martyrs, Peter's thinking? I'm a denier. You know, I, I couldn't stand while, while you were still there. So when you leave, how am I going to be any stronger? Because of the power of the Holy Spirit. He'll, he'll enable you to be a martyr, a living martyr. <laughs> you know, willing to die if need be. But your life is laid down for him while you are alive. And so how often are we like Peter? You know, we talk when we should listen. We argue when we should obey. We sleep when we should pray. And we fight when we should submit. But that's all of us. It's not just Peter. And the Lord knows that. And he is so sympathetic to us in our weakness. In verse 61 Right after, Jesus, right after Peter cursed and I do not know what you're saying and denied the Lord the third time, the rooster crowed, verse 61, and the Lord turned and looked at Peter. Then Peter remembered the word of the Lord, how he'd said to him, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. So Peter went out and wept bitterly. I don't know about you guys, but I think this is one of the most dramatic scenes in the New Testament. I mean, the man had just got done cursing people and cursing God and cursing Jesus. I do not know Jesus. I do not know that man. In that moment, he looks over and somehow Jesus was still within sight and their eyes meet. That's drama, you guys. 
That's incredible. But what do you think Peter saw in Jesus's eyes when their eyes locked? What do you think he saw? Condemnation and anger? Gosh, I just told you an hour ago that you do this. You're so stupid, you know? That would have been me. You know, or do you think it was compassion? You know, Romans tells us that it's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. It's the kindness, man. It's, it's the look of Jesus after you just blew it three times, big time, adamantly. It's looking at Jesus and seeing, man, I love you anyways. I love you anyways. That's what makes us want to follow him. Not that when I get back alive again, I am going to backhand you like there's no tomorrow. You know, and you will follow me. You know, that's not what causes us to want to follow the Lord. It's his kindness. It's his compassion. And you know what? Peter probably became very useful that day because he realized he was a failure as his gaze met Christ. He was emptied that night of all of Peter. He was emptied of the pride of the, I will never deny you. Don't you know who I am? I'm the rock, you know, but he's completely emptied so that he can be filled again. He's complete, completely broken so that he can be healed. You know, he, he weeps bitterly, we read, so that soon he can know oh, the joy of forgiveness. And man, I can't wait to get to the resurrection again as we look at the, the story of the resurrection because John's gospel says that when Jesus rose from the dead and he met with the women on the road there, he said, go tell the disciples and Peter. You know, not go tell the disciples, make sure Peter doesn't get anywhere around me. That guy, I watched him deny me. No, go tell the disciples and Peter. I'll meet him in Galilee and I can't wait to see him. And man, John chapter 21, there is a reunion, you guys. We'll get into it. I don't want to spoil it for in a couple of weeks. But Peter was emptied. Peter was broken. Peter wept. And if you read Christian biographies, which you should, I actually like to go to desiringgod.org. It's John Piper's website. And under the teachings or the messages section, there's biographies. And he does a great job. If you're driving, if you drive a lot, listen to some of these biographies. But in almost every one of them, you'll find in these awesome stories of Christian men and women, that their explanation of their usefulness always is accompanied by the stories of their emptiness and their brokenness, and the times of tears, and regret, and struggles in their marriage, and disappointments, and times of doubting God, and times of quitting the mission field, and going back home, and being, you know, accused by the people at their home church, why'd you quit? You shouldn't have gone in the first place. And to see these men go through the wilderness, these hard times, these struggling times, only to find that in the end, the Lord was polishing them. To make them the gems that he knew they could be. And you see this in all the scriptures. You see that David, you know, running from Saul, he had his time in the wilderness. He had his time where he, you know, collapsed in front of the door and was faking madness and 
foaming at the mouth, pretending to have rabies, you know, so that people would leave him alone. He had his time of committing adultery and murdering that woman's husband and lying about it and being confronted on it. Those are all stories about great men. But the cool thing is, is you have the story of his repentance, of him crying out, Lord, it's against you and you alone that I've sinned against. Lord, restore the joy of my salvation. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. You know, oh Lord, I appeal to your tender mercies. And we see David just coming back in good strength. Man, whether you're young and you feel a call to the mission field or whether you're older and you're feeling a call to the ministry, you won't amount to very much until you realize as you gaze into the eyes of Jesus, you realize your weakness. And man, almost every time I get up to teach, I know I'm nothing and I got nothing. And I have just today we were praying before we come out, Lord, I've got, you know, two fish and five loaves here. And I'm supposed to go out there with this? Lord, I don't, multiply it, Lord. Only you can. I, I'm not sufficient for these things. You are sufficient. I'm a denier of you, Jesus. How am I supposed to go into my school and start a Bible study? Or how am I supposed to start a prayer meeting before work in my place of employment? How am I supposed to share the gospel with my boss that he might just fire me? He might hate Christians. Lord, I, I'm a denier. How can I do it? Lord, I rely on you. I rely on you. The key to Peter's usefulness turned on a dark night that he regretted for the rest of his life. You know, for the rest of his life, he remembered that night when he denied and he denied and he cursed and he lied. And then he looked over into those eyes of love and compassion and understanding. And he said, I never want to be in that place again. And then he saw the resurrected Jesus who proved everything that Jesus had said. And he was able to experience the forgiveness of Jesus there. And they, as they met by the Lake Tiberias, and then he was baptized with the Holy spirit and given boldness. And we see him walking as a radical leader in the book of acts. So Peter, you know, don't run from your failures, Peter. If, if you're a Peter out there, but give them up to the Lord and let him make them into strengths. Verse 63, now the men who held Jesus mocked him and beat him. And having blindfolded him, they struck him on the face and asked him saying, prophesy, who's the one who struck you? And many other things they blasphemously spoke against him. You know, this is something we're going to see in the next uh Uh, the next two weeks as we study the crucifixion through the the trial through the crucifixion, that Jesus's body was literally broken for us. Isaiah chapter 50. Let's flip over to Isaiah. We're going to look at three different verses. Isaiah chapter 50, verse six. It says, I gave my back to those who struck me. You know, Jesus says, you don't take my life from me, but I lay it down. I give my back to the whip. I gave my cheeks to those who plucked out my beard. I did not hide my face from the shame and the spitting. And here in the trial, you guys, it's beginning. It's beginning. This is the first blow that 
man's hands have actually gotten to land on Jesus as they blindfold him, strike him from all areas in the face, you know, uh, beating his face. Isaiah 52, 14, just flip over two chapters. Just as many were astonished at you, so his visage was marred more than any man and his form more than the sons of men. We're going to come back to this. In a couple weeks, we're going to study the medical aspects of the crucifixion and what Jesus' body went through for us. But we see Isaiah prophesied that you know, his, his appearance was marred more than any man, living man, had ever been. You wouldn't be able to even... Uh, he didn't look like a man by the time that the Jews, by the time that Pilate, and by the time that Herod was done, was done with him. No man has ever looked the way that Jesus looked that day. Isaiah chapter 53, verse 3. He's despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we did not esteem him. You know, here he's being beaten and nobody was there to esteem him. You know, have you ever been punched in the face? I've never taken a punch from a man. I mean, I've gotten the basketball to the face, you know, you get that weird feeling, you know, I've been whacked in the face by the horse, uh, a horse's head, you know, that knocked me back quite a few feet, you know, I had a little concussion that day, but you know, I've never experienced anything like Jesus has experienced here. You know, we went out to the Antone a couple weeks ago and we got to shoot the 50 caliber rifle and the concussion from that gun. You're standing over there with your earplugs in like, and just the, the airwaves off of this gun, it's like getting slapped in the face. Like, you kind of have to, oh, you know, that's the worst that Rory's ever experienced, you know. But I see what this guy went through who never sinned. See what this man who loved everybody he came across went through. You know, where already the beatings begin and the mockings begin and the blasphemy against him begins. And in verse 66, as soon as it was day, the elders of the people, both chief priests and scribes came together and led him into their council. So now really the trial begins. They just got to have their way and beat, beat him up a little bit. And uh, they led him to their council saying, if you're the Christ, tell us. If you're the Messiah, if you're the anointed one, tell us. But he said to them, if I tell you, you will by no means believe. And if I also ask you, you will by no means let me go or answer me. Hereafter, the Son of Man will sit on the right hand of the power of God. Then they all said, are you then the Son of God? And he said to them, you rightly say that I am. So his answer to, are you the Christ, is basically a quote from Daniel that, that leads them to conclude in their own mind that he's the son of God. He didn't even say it. He just read a verse. And in their mind, they said, so you're saying you're the son of God. And he says, you said it, not me. <laughs> you said it. And you rightly said it. And they said, what further need do we have of testimony? We've heard it ourselves from his own mouth. So that the issue here, the issue that they want to kill him for is what? Blasphemy. Declaring himself to be God. That angered them. You know, there's a lot of cults out there today. And there's a lot of, a lot of lies going around that Jesus never claimed that he was God. Well, 
John chapter five, verse 18, the Jews sought to kill Jesus, you know, not because he'd broken a law on the Sabbath, but it says because he, he said that God was his father, making him equal with God. Well, I say God's my father. Am I God? No, you're not. See, you're adopted. Okay. Romans chapter 11. But we, or excuse me, but he, he's literally God's son. Okay. Uh, Mary being his, his mother there on the earth uh, as he becomes a man. And you know what we're going to get into in about, it'll be about six weeks, but on Wednesday night, we're going to do a doctrine series of what every Christian should believe. We're going to do an in-depth study on the Trinity. One of those nights, one of those nights will be given over to the deity of Jesus. But Jesus claimed to be God. The Jews knew it. He knew it. Pilate knew it. And, you know, John chapter 14, verse 7, John chapter 10, verse 30, John chapter 14, verse 11, John 17, 11, Matthew 27, 43. These are all just random ones that I picked that Jesus is saying, I'm God. If you've seen the Father, you've seen me also. Okay, so, so Jesus, he claimed to be God here and it infuriated them. What more do we need? Let's, let's kill him is basically what they say there in verse 71. In chapter 23, it says, then the whole multitude of them arose and led him to Pilate. So now they want to kill him, but they can't do it. So they need to take him to Pilate. Now, first thing in the morning, they take him to this, this Pilate, this Roman governor of Judea. The Amplified Version says that they bound Jesus and they carried him away violently to Pilate. And if you'll look over there in Mark chapter 15, verse 28, we're going to, I really struggle just staying in Luke when all the other gospels add so much to the, to the night, you know, they add so much to what happened. They add so much to what was said. So, so we'll, we'll flip around just a little bit, but Mark chapter 15, verse 28 says they led Jesus from Caiaphas to the Praetorium. It was early morning, but they themselves did not go into the Praetorium lest they should be defiled, that they might eat the Passover. Pilate then went out to them and said, what accusation do you bring against this man? And they answered and said to him, if he were not an evildoer, he wouldn't, we would not be delivering him up to you. So don't you rest assured there's something really wrong with this guy. Then Pilate said to him, you take him and judge him according to your law. I don't want to have anything to do with this dispute. And the Jews said to him, it's not lawful for us to put anyone to death. That the saying of Jesus might be fulfilled, which he spoke, signifying by what death he would die. The Jews had been issued a decree over them by the Romans. It was called Pax Romana or Roman peace. The Jews had basically lost their right for capital punishment. And we know what they used as capital punishment, right? They used stones. So now they're taking him to, G, uh, to Pilate so that if Pilate can kill him, he's going to be crucified. And it's all part of God's plan, his prophetic plan, that the son of man might be lifted up. And he says, Jesus says, while well, he says that just like, you know, in Moses's day, when that bronze serpent was lifted up in the pole back in the book of Numbers, and so here he is, he's before Pilate so that the Romans could put Jesus to death. Now we're going to push pause on, on the, on the Pilate trial for a second, because Matthew's gospel tells us something happens at that same time with Judas Iscariot. And if you're in Matthew, if you could flip to Matthew chapter 27, verse three, it says that Judas Iscariot, his betrayer, 
seeing that Jesus had been condemned, was remorseful. Oh, now he's remorseful. And brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders saying, I've sinned by betraying innocent blood. And they said, what is that to us? You see to it. Then he threw down the pieces of silver in the temple and departed and went and hanged himself. But the chief priest took the silver pieces and said, it is not lawful for us to put them into the treasury because they are the price of blood. And they consulted together and bought with them the potter's field to bury strangers in. Therefore, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet saying, and they took the 30 pieces of silver, the value of him who was priced, whom they of the children of Israel priced and gave them for the potter's field as the Lord directed me. So this field was bought and Judas went out and hung himself. Now Acts chapter one, verse 15 tells us a little more what happened to Judas. He goes out and he hangs himself probably in a tree in the middle of this field. As time goes on, it's Passover week, the heat of the Judean sun. This guy starts to get a little ripe there, hanging on the tree, okay? And Acts tells us that this man fell down, probably fell out of the tree, and burst forth in in the field, burst forth everywhere. And that's why that that, uh, field is called the field of blood. And so, you know, Jesus said, you know, for this man, it would be better if he was never born. And it's just sad to see that, that, you know, Judas made his choice there. So that's all happening while Jesus is standing before Pilate. And uh, verse back in Luke chapter 23, verse 2, he's standing before Pilate and they all began to accuse him, saying, we found this fellow perverting the nation and forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar, saying that he himself is Christ, a king. Okay, so now they're charged. They know that Pilate's never going to kill him for blasphemy. What does Pilate care about blasphemy? So they take the charge from blasphemy to that of, you know, a national threat to Rome. And, you know, a lot of false witnesses are brought up. And they begin to say, he said, don't pay taxes to Caesar. Well, what do we know about Jesus? He didn't say, don't pay taxes to Caesar. But he said, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. You know, pay the tax to Caesar. It's his money. It's his face on the money. But they bring it a Roman charge against Jesus so that hopefully the Romans will kill him. Then Pilate asked him, saying, are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him and said, it is as you say. So the first question towards Jesus from Pilate, the Greek language, that word you is in the front. And so the way that it's actually said is you are the king of the Jews? You're the king of the Jews? And Jesus says, it is as you say. Now, John's gospel, chapter 18, verse 33, adds more to this dialogue. Pilate entered the praetorium and called Jesus and said, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered him, are you speaking for yourself about this or did other tell you this concerning me? In other words, do you want to know this Pilate? Do you want to know if I'm the Messiah? You know, or or are you just part of their little plan out there? And Pilate answered, am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests had delivered to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now my kingdom is not from here. Pilate therefore said to him, are you a king then? 
he, Jesus answered, you say rightly that I'm a king for this cause. I was born and for this cause, I've come into the world that I should bear witness to the truth. Everyone who's of the truth, hears my voice. And so Pilate said to him that age old question, philosophical question, what is truth? What is truth? You know, Pilate at this point dismisses Jesus as some philosophical teacher with questions that no one has an answer to. And Pilate himself doesn't wait for the answer from the truth himself. And when he said this, he went out again to the Jews and said to them, I find no fault in him at all. Three times Pilate is going to walk out and say, I find no fault in him. I find no fault in him. I find no fault in him. And then the Jews, by the end, they're going to get so angry that they're just going to be yelling, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. And all of a sudden, okay, crucify him. You know, something happened in Pilate to where he he wrestled too much. He should have made the declaration, there's no fault in him. I'm letting him go. But he wanted to please the crowd. And that's where Pilate has his own little downfall. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 13, Paul tells Timothy, I urge you in the sight of God who gives all uh, life to all things, and before Jesus Christ, who witnessed the good confession before Pontius Pilate, and then he goes on to say what that good confession was before Pontius Pilate, that he is the blessed and only potentate, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. You guys, to Jesus, that was the blessed confession. To us, that's the good confession. That Jesus Christ is Lord of Lords, King of Kings. When it comes down to it, you guys, you can always fall back on that. Well, I don't know what to say. I don't know what to do. Hey, Jesus Christ is Lord of Lords. He's King of Kings. He's on the throne. He's the Messiah. It's the good confession. We're not going to do the whole chapter of verse 23, just the whole chapter of 23. So verse four, so Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowd, I find no fault in this man, but they were all the more fierce saying he stirs up the people teaching throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee to this place. And when Pilate heard of Galilee, he asked if the man was a Galilean. And as soon as he knew that he belonged to the Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who was also in Jerusalem at that time. You know, Pilate is thinking, what did I do? That I wake up this morning and first thing on my plate is this Jesus of Nazareth guy that everyone wants to kill, but he hasn't done anything wrong. And I've got to please this crowd. What did I do wrong? Is there any way I can get out of this? Wait a second. You're from Galilee? Well, that's Herod's jurisdiction. Off you go. Get out of here. Don't let the screen door hit you where the good Lord split you, Jesus, you know? Yeah, that's probably not a good thing to say about Jesus. I apologize. (laughs) Just got that look from Jesus that he gave Peter. Um, you know, get out of here. Oh, I find, Oh, I don't have to deal with this now. And so he sends him off over to Herod. Sends him over to Herod. Now, um, verse uh, 8, we see this account. It's the, Luke is the only gospel that, that mentions the account of Jesus going before Herod. 
Uh, that Herod here is Herod Antipas, and he's the son of Herod the Great. Now, Herod the Great was the Herod that was alive when Jesus was born. Remember, he was really jealous when he found out there's a little baby out there being called a king. And so he had all of the two-year-old babies and younger killed, just like Pharaoh did in the book of Exodus. That was Herod the Great. That was Herod Antipas's daddy, okay? Um, so, so that's who we're talking about here. Herod Antipas was also the man who... Um, Really loved John the Baptist, liked John the Baptist's teachings, you know. Um, but when he was confronted on his affair with his sister-in-law, he he put John in prison and eventually beheaded John. You guys know the story. So let's just read a little bit here, verse eight. When Herod saw Jesus, he was exceedingly glad, for he desired for a long time to see him, because he's heard many things about him, and he hoped to see some miracle done by him. You know, uh, the other gospels say that when Herod heard about Jesus, all of his buddies were like, it's probably Elijah risen from the dead or, you know, or come back, you know, it's probably Elisha risen from the dead. It's, you know, and he goes, no, it's John the Baptist risen from the dead. Oh no, I'm in big trouble now. Uh, he'd been hearing about all these miracles and he was really excited to see something, some voodoo, witchcraft, sorcery stuff from Jesus. I mean, he couldn't wait. But in verse nine, when Herod questioned him, Jesus with a great many words Jesus answered him nothing. Herod was so excited. Herod's kind of a weird guy when you study Herod, you know. There's something about that guy. You know, can you just picture him clapping when Jesus comes in like, you know, as those weird kings often do. But um, we see guys like Herod all throughout the scriptures. In fact, if you've been coming on Wednesday nights to our second king study, we've studied 19 kings of Israel. Each of them more wicked than the next, really. And we see that God raised up prophets to come and speak the truth into these kings' lives and confront them on their sin and call them to repentance. I mean, we're talking everything from child sacrifice to pornography of the day, worship through sexual immorality, you know, wicked, wicked stuff going on. And these prophets would come and call these men to repentance. And the kings would hate these prophets. I hate that guy. He only prophesies evil concerning me and never anything good. That's constantly what they felt about those prophets. But then, you know, sometimes the, the prophets would give them, the, you know, to let them know how to end a famine in the land, you know, or they would do a miracle by turning the bitter waters into pure water or by healing a woman's son. And these kings were interested in that. In fact, King Jehoram talked to Elijah's servant Gehazi and asked, tell me more about when Elisha healed the widow's son, you know, and tell me more about this and tell him, oh, wow. Oh, you know, he was really interested. But when the rubber met the road and the king had to listen and obey what the prophets were saying, they didn't want to do it. They hated the prophets. Guys, the same thing is happening right here with Herod. John the Baptist had been, had a ministry in Herod's life, had called him to repent. There were times that Herod would become a more moral individual because of the things that John the Baptist preached. But when it came down to repentance of his affair, he didn't want to do it. So he put John the Baptist in prison. Herod had had a lot of chances to repent. And here is really one of his final chances as he stands before Jesus and Jesus doesn't answer him a word. You know, we also have been studying in the Kings that there's these showdowns of silence, you know, have you ever had just a weird look at somebody in the eye and, you know, 
Jesus isn't saying anything. And Herod just keeps trying to change the subject off of himself and off of his sin. And hey, dance, monkey, dance. But, but he's not being moved and Jesus isn't being moved. And he, there's this conviction that goes on where Herod should have fallen on his face before Jesus right there and repented of his affair and repented of his sin. Instead, it says right there that verse 10, as the chief priests and scribes stood and vehemently accused him that Herod with his men of war treated him with contempt and mocked him and arrayed him in a gorgeous robe and sent him back to Pilate. And that very day, Pilate and Herod became friends with each other for previously they'd been at enmity with each other. So strange relationship healing that happened there through Christ's sufferings. We'll just go through verse 25 real quick here. He's taken back to Pilate and we can throw up that slide of the, just the map. It's kind of hard to read Uh, I prepared kind of a video tour of the road to Jesus, but it didn't work on the computer today. So now we have this kind of hard to read thing that kind of has the map of Jesus. Jesus started on the bottom left, the little block there, it says upper room and arrow pointing to it. Started there at the beginning of the night, went with the disciples out the Southern gate up to the Mount of Olives where he prayed in the garden of Gethsemane. He's taken then to, uh, Caiaphas's house back over by the upper room. Then he's led up north, north of the temple to Fortress of Antonio, you see there. That's where Pilate tried him. Then he's sent clear over to the left to Herod Antipas's palace. And then back over right now to the Fortress of Antonio, where he's going to be then sent north to uh, the possible Golgotha, which, uh, where he was crucified there. Okay, so then Pilate, so he's back to Pilate. Pilate's thinking, how did I get this guy again? Um, Pilate called all the elders, the chief priests, and the rulers of the people and said to them, look, you've brought this man to me as one who misleads the people. And indeed, having examined him in your presence, I found no fault in this man concerning those things of which you accuse him. No, neither did Herod, for I sent you back to him. And indeed, nothing deserving of death has been done by him. So, you know, Pilate's conscience is telling him to release him. The law is telling him to release him. Pilate's gut is telling him to release him. He's done nothing wrong, but these Jews are adamant that Jesus should be killed. And rather than just letting him go, then he says in verse 16, I will therefore chastise him and release him. Now that doesn't mean shame, shame, Jesus of Nazareth. You need to just be quiet now and go home and watch TV and just Stay out of trouble, okay? No, chastisement. I'm going to scourge him with the cat of nine tails, 39 lashes. That might kill him. And if it doesn't, we'll send him home, okay? I'll do that for you guys. And the Jews realize, guys, we got him. We've got him. He's willing to beat the guy now. That's one step before the crucifixion. Let's, come on, let's keep pressing him. Let's be more loud. Let's be more rowdy and wily and rambunctious. And and he'll kill him. I know it. So they became more and more uh, fiery uh, declaring they, they wanted him crucified. In verse 16, I'll, I'll chastise him, I'll release him. For it was necessary for him to release one of them at the feast. And they all cried out once saying, away with this man and release to us Barabbas, who'd been thrown into prison for a certain rebellion made in the city and for murder. So forget Jesus. We don't want this guy. We want this guy. Now, the interesting thing is Barabbas means Bar Abba, son of the father. So they're exchanging the son of God, the son of the father and delivering up to be killed. 
And in exchange, they want this false son of the father, who's not only a rebel, but he's a murderer. So, uh, verse 20, Pilate, therefore, wishing to release Jesus, again called out to them. You know, he, he really wanted to let Jesus go. You kind of feel for this guy. He's in a peer pressure circumstance like you've never went through in high school. You know, these guys are demanding the crucifixion of Jesus. And Matthew's gospel even says that Pilate's wife came up to him and said, you let this guy go. Don't hurt him or harm him. I have had some bad dreams last night about what's hap- going to happen to us, you know, if, if we kill him. And so Pilate's got a lot of pressure to let Jesus go. But they shouted saying, crucify him, crucify him. And then he said to them the third time, why, what evil has he done? I found no reason for death in him. I will therefore chastise him and let him go. But they were insistent and demanded with loud voices that he be crucified. And the voices of these men of the chief priests prevailed. So Pilate gave sentence that it should be as they requested. And he released to them the one they requested. Who for rebellion and murder had been thrown into prison. But he delivered Jesus to their will. So they got their way and Jesus gave them over to the gave him over to the crowd to be crucified. He, and he released the sinner, the rebellious one, the murderer. You guys, there's such a picture here and we err so bad. If we leave this place and we just think, wow, you know, Pilate really should have made up his mind. So that's a lesson to us. We better make up our minds really quick and good job. Good little Christian. You know, that is not the message here. The message is, like 2 Corinthians chapter 5 tells us, he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. 2 Peter tells us that Jesus died once for all, the just for the unjust. And that's what's happening here. The just takes the place of the rebellion murder man. That's us. We're so rebellious. We're so adulterous in our hearts. We're so hateful and murdering in our hearts. We need a savior. Well, the good news is the just was delivered up for the unjust that we might be saved, that we might take on his righteousness. And do you think that Barabbas got out of prison and ran off and, you know, headed out to the Golan Heights or whatever, I would venture to say that he hung around to see what was going to happen to this man. I would venture to say when he saw the three crosses on the hill, he realized that he was supposed to be on that one cross. And here's this guy that doesn't seem to have done anything wrong, the best that he knew. And he's hanging in his place and I'm standing out there free now. That's us. That's you. You're free now because Jesus took your place on the cross. You are not free to continue in sin. You are free to live in righteousness now. He made him who knew no sin to become sin for you. That you might not continue living on in your sin, but that you might become righteousness in Jesus. Lord, I just pray right now for those in this room who are like Herod. And all Jesus is to, to them or is a, 
a good message that he can go back and try to be more moral with. Or all Jesus is is a guy that, yeah, I know that he could do some magic if I wanted him to. Lord, we know that that person will die in their sins if that's the case. And Lord, we pray that today that this congregation would see your faithfulness to endure the shame and the spitting and the beating, the accusations and the blasphemies, the trials. Because the Son of Man must be delivered up, must be crucified. But He'll rise again on the third day. And Lord, as we close today, we just, we want to go away with He who was perfect took the place of Him who was imperfect. He who was holy took the place of a sinner. Jesus, who is pure, took the place of Rory. And each one of us who was filthy, dead in our sins, Lord, if there was any other way, if Pilate could have just released you, Lord, and let you go, and you just lived to a ripe old age. If there was any other way, then you wouldn't have had to die. Lord, we know there was no other way. And that's why you hung on the tree. Lord, may your kindness chase us to repent and turn from our sins. May your kindness cause us to want to worship you. May your kindness cause us to want to run away from our sexual sin, run away from our idol worshiping of that person or those people or that hobby or that possession. May your love towards us just cause us to want to, with reckless abandon, follow hard after you and obey you and love you and be used by you. And just where you're at today, if you have never given your life over to Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, today, just in in the secret place of your heart, in the best way you know how, you can just say, Lord, I am that Barabbas that was condemned to death. And I realize today that you took my place on the cross. And I ask that you'd forgive me of my sins. I ask that you'd help me to live a life that's worthy of your sacrifice you made on that tree. May my life now be an act of praise to you. Just if that's you, just the best way in your heart, you can pray that out. And as we close in worship, you can for the first time Worship Jesus 
and he'll hear your praise and he'll hear your prayers. Your sin is no longer a a wall between you and him. It's been removed and you have access to the Lord now. And you can just sing with us with this last song. Let's stand. You've been listening to Pastor Rory Rogers, pastor of Calvary Chapel of Crook County in Prineville, Oregon. For more information on Calvary Chapel of Crook County or to contribute to this ministry, check out our website at www.calvarycrookcounty.com or you may write to us at P.O. Box 378, Prineville, Oregon 97754. Thank you for listening and God bless.